Hi, welcome to the Funding Blueprint Unlocking Startup Success, presented by StartHub. I'm Cody Goff, and today you're going to learn about startups and lawyers. How can you know when your startup needs legal counsel? How can an attorney help you protect your company? And what are your options for paying for one when you're just getting started? My guest today is Kristen Corpion, an award-winning business attorney who helps entrepreneurs view and use the law as a tool for growth instead of an expensive landmine. She's a law school professor and community leader in South Florida with many accolades as a lawyer to her name. She founded a law firm that specialized in working with locally owned small businesses and focused on helping entrepreneurs grow and protect their business. And when we recorded her interview, her law firm had just gone through a merger with another law firm, which is a big deal. So to start our interview, I told Kristen, congratulations, and asked how that merger came about. Here's what she told me. Was that a goal when you set out or just a, a happy, happy thing that happened? You know, everything about the goals I originally set for myself in my professional journey has just shifted. So no, it wasn't necessarily a goal, but also not something that I was necessarily opposed to. So I think my entrepreneurial journey is really similar to my clients. You know, sometimes you build something, you learn things about yourself, and it just makes sense. The stars align to join forces with another team. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds about as startup-y as, uh, as, it, as it gets. Uh, so, you know, on this show, we like to talk about the pivotal moment that that really sparked that moment in a startup where they got funded, maybe, or really just jumped to the next level. So let's start with, with your situation. What, was, what would you say was the single most important factor in having a successful merger, something maybe other startups can replicate? You know, I've, I've done M&A from the mergers and acquisitions from the more small business startup side advising clients. But now doing this as an entrepreneur who built my firm, it's my baby, it's my art, everything about it, poured my blood, sweat and tears into it. And I know a lot of times people don't see lawyers as entrepreneurs, but lawyers who set out to build something, we are entrepreneurs too. And so I really had that pride in my business and what I was growing, you know? Uh, and so for me, I think being, when I advise clients, I could always tell that there wasn't only the legal or business side of the um, deal, there was the emotional side. Feeling that what you're building is going to, the legacy is gonna carry on. A lot of times deals break down um, over using the wrong words or not giving the right respect or deference to a creator or an entrepreneur. And so I really think that the trust is the most important piece. At least it was for me. And it helped a lot with the fact that I knew the partners that I was merging with, with Trembly since, since I started out of law school, so close to 10 years. Um, There's a lot of trust there that allowed me to answer certain questions in a way that I felt comfortable with. Like, do we have a values alignment? You know, here it wasn't a pure acquisition where the owner, me, was gonna just leave and not be involved that merger for me and for my team coming over with me, um, it was important that I was going somewhere where there's values alignment, we're working with similar clientele, we have similar viewpoints. And it's one thing to say you have similar values, but it's another to really have that trust and see it through. So I think trust is a really important piece, especially if the owner or founding team is gonna stay on and be involved. That's a really interesting point. Now, if I'm a startup founder and I walk into a VC uh, firm's office, 
do you have any recommendations for how they can assess that level of trust so that they can, uh, uh, you know, make sure they have the same values? Yeah. So every person and relationship is different. So take everything here with the, with a grain of salt. But some things that I consider yellow flags, maybe red flags, are if you're asking questions, whether it's to a VC or to someone else, and there's an extreme hesitancy to answer them. You know, you want to know then why is there the extreme hesitancy? Or if you're asking for certain documents in a due diligence context, like, you know, hey, I want to see the financials or, hey, I want to know about employees that have been fired recently and what their experience was like or the ones that just left on their own. Uh, And you get an extreme hesitancy to get that information. Maybe you want to drill down a little bit further. But doing that due diligence, asking a lot of questions and not only to one person, you know, usually in any business, it's a unit. There are a lot of folks who are in the organization and maybe no longer with the organization. It's a good idea to ask questions there to the extent that you can and you're not limited by any type of confidentiality provision or anything like that. Yeah. You know, could you have, I mean, could there be a scenario, let's pretend, where you walked in, this potential merger was going to happen. There's good money on the table. Maybe, maybe financially it's a great thing, but that value isn't a fit. Is that something you think you'd be able to walk away from or, or many startup founders would be able to walk away from? And how important is that? I mean, I guess it depends on what stage you're in. So if all the paperwork is already signed and depending on the legal team that you know you hired, maybe at that point you're done and there isn't a universe where you can backtrack, which is why it's so important to get all that information before you've signed on the dotted line and you started things. Listen, any merger, there's going to be some ups and downs. It's tough to put two businesses together, you know, even when both parties are really being mature professionals, trying to make it work. Sometimes you can lose some customers who aren't happy with it, some great team members who just don't want to switch over. You have to be ready for that type of a transition and knowing it's not going to be perfect entirely. But to the extent that you go into it and you find out a lot of things that were an extreme surprise, sometimes, depending on how the contracts are written, maybe that could be a reason to turn the deal upside down, you know, really kind of comes back to what you signed. Cool. So let's, uh, let's shift gears now and talk uh, about the, the legal specific aspects of entrepreneurship and, and startup culture. What is the biggest legal mistake you see entrepreneurs making that you want our listener to not make? This is our chance to solve a lot of problems before they happen. <laughs> okay. If you will let me do three, like A, yeah. B, C of legal. I know we only have so much time. I do a free presentation on this a lot, so I'm sure someone can find it for free on the internet somewhere. But A, B, C's for me, A is focusing on securing and protecting your assets, businesses have assets, whether that's your brand, your name, marketing, human capital, protect those assets. For me, the B in the ABCs is think through and be really cautious with your business relationships, whether that's with a VC or whether it's with an advisor or employee or co-founder. Really make sure you're careful there to put the appropriate conversations in writing, think through what might be used against you or, or not. And be aware that, you know, and people tend to overestimate their relationships. Some of the reason why people hate lawyers is because our job is to look at circumstances with the evil eye, you know, like what if everything goes wrong? And so when co-founders are coming together, it's not our intent to break them up, but rather than overestimate, let's think through what could happen if 
things were to go sour. So always evaluate those business relationships. Make sure you have things in writing. It's not inherently mean or offensive to ask someone to clarify points and to put things in writing. Nothing wrong with that. And then my C in the ABCs of legal, contracts. Especially here in the United States, so much you know, is contractually driven. You could have oral contracts, written contracts, and there is often, I see, with entrepreneurs, and maybe rightly so, right? You didn't go to law school for a reason. You probably don't want to sit down and read the fine print. That's not a fun thing for many people. And so I see a lot of times entrepreneurs just signing away rights without knowing what they mean. And I think maybe in their mind they think, well, if something ever comes of this, I'll just get out of it. That's not how contract law works inherently. You sign it, you're bound by it. And so there's a real risk in signing something that you don't understand. So my C in the ABCs of legal is contracts. Be really careful with what you do there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I I used to produce a radio show for an attorney in Chicago, and she seemed to indicate that really a lot of times, as long as something is in writing, maybe it's not a legal contract, but if, if, if you have an email from a, somebody they're working with that says, you know, I promise you X and Y, there's some, there's some legal standing to that. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, not with everything. There are things like statute of frauds and certain situations where certain deals have to be done in writing to be valid, certain conveyances. But if you're looking at just a general rule, you do want to be careful because a lot of things that you put in writing can be upheld as a contract. Cool. That's actually good news for me. I've gotten, uh, I've, <laughs> I've agreed to some things with people and I've got the email that says, I guarantee this. And and I'm like, well, I got that. I'll clutch it close, you know, until they can get a lawyer to, to write it up. Because with contracts, I mean, you know, startups don't have a lot of money and uh, legal costs are expensive. So, you know, how can a startup afford a lawyer when they're not making any money? <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the struggle of an entrepreneur starting something without a lot there. I was raised by an entrepreneur. I think that's why I love it so much. I myself, when I started my business, did not have any much of a pot of anything to pull from, you know. But I guess as I have received coaching and learned about business from different ideologies, I feel like it's important to say the responsibility of the entrepreneur, of the owner, of the team that's building the business is to sell stuff, is to make money. And I like to think about it in reverse, right? It's your job to go out and make what you need to make to afford the things that you need to operate the business. That's not the professional's job to do. It's it's your job to do. So I would say go make the money you need to make to run your business properly. I mean, that's the opportunity and challenge all of us entrepreneurs have. Sure, sure. So let's say an entrepreneur is really scrappy, doing what they can to get things off the ground and maybe maybe they just can't turn a profit immediately, right? It's going to take take a runway. So they decide, well, I could give away some equity. Uh, let's say they decide to work with a lawyer, let's say, and, and say, oh, I'll give this lawyer some equity. But then equity requires like 
a legal contract, right? So then, like, would you be giving equity to a lawyer and saying, like, hey, we'd like to give you equity. Could you write up the contract? And then is there any way for a startup founder to trust that that's going to be executed properly, right? And that there's going to be no conflict of interest on the lawyer's part or on the legal team? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think as you're being scrappy and entrepreneurial and thinking through how can I get something maybe without, you know, pulling out money to pay for it right now, I will say one, yes, in many states, it is allowed by the bar, which kind of governs what we can and can't do as lawyers. Um, it is allowed, including Florida, for you to exchange legal services for equity. So like, can it be done? Yes. Whether or not a firm or professional will choose to do it then comes down to like your professional judgment. And if you won financially as a firm, I mean, law firms are a business too. And so they can't operate and have the softwares they need and things they need to run if they don't get paid. But assuming a firm is in a financial position to do that, they could accept it. Um, a lot of, I won't say a lot, some firms take the position that they will not do it, so exchange equity for provision of legal services, um, because there can be some conflicts that arise. And I think in your question, you're getting at those. You know, Now, the role of the lawyer is the zealous advocate for the client. We represent you or the business, and our duty is to you, not to ourselves. I know people love to hate lawyers, um, but it's one thing to get paid a fee, and it's a whole nother thing to get paid a portion of equity. You know, that's a very different type of relationship. And so it creates a conflict. And yeah, in that scenario, unless you want to pay the lawyer more, part of that fee that they're getting in terms of the equity down the line is them writing their own contract. I guess presumably you could have an outside lawyer do it, but it kind of goes against the point if your goal there is to save money. And so for ethical reasons, some firms, even though they could do that, will choose not to. Going back then to the ABCs, protecting assets, uh, the business relationships and C contracts, those not all of those necessarily need a lawyer day one. Like you can do things to protect your assets without you know um, involving legal documents, right? So when do you think a startup typically needs a lawyer? Is there a particular tipping point or a particular function where it's like, all right, you really got to work with a professional here? Yeah, I think that's the absolute right question to ask. So um, the way lawyers analyze risk is on a spectrum of least risky to most risky. And so important to know the difference between, you know, can and must. So when must someone hire a lawyer? There are not many circumstances really where it is a must. Plenty of people run businesses for years without ever hiring a lawyer, right? And so when someone should hire a lawyer is when proportionally their risk increases. So if we've got a startup, let's say, that's in the financial industry or healthcare industry, where there is more risk, more regulation, much harder to DIY, proportionately, you're going to more, be more likely to need that lawyer than if you're in a less risky industry where maybe you can get by with a simple sales contract or just kind of doing business a little bit more casually. The higher the regulatory hurdle, whether at the federal or state level or both, the less likely it is that you could DIY it. That, that sounds similar to me okay. to, <laughs> to having a human resources department. 
Like I've worked for startups with no HR. Oh, and, sure. sure. Right. And sometimes, sometimes the, the founder or maybe a couple people on the team, they, they just handle kind of the hiring and everything. And HR is a, a highly regulated, like legal thing, right? Like theoretically you'd think everyone needs an HR person, but uh, is it kind of similar in that vein? I think that's fair. And sometimes you'll see companies who maybe they hire HR first and then HR kind of starts getting blended into legal a little bit. Um, And you'll see companies hire a lawyer first and the legal team will be doing some of the HR. I understand that when you're building, you just have a lot of um, all hands on deck. This is who I have. So this is how we get it done. But as the company grows, it's important to get to a place where you've got the right person sitting in the right seat. For example, if you've got legal doing some HR, the fees are really going to get to be ast- astronomical in that you really shouldn't have legal doing the day-to-day HR functionality. Economically, it just doesn't make sense at some point in the business. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that they're kind of similar. And I think it would be unfair and just a lie. For a lawyer to say, just because you open a business, you absolutely have to um, hire a lawyer. That's not true. There's no, it's not a law that's written. It's more like you should wear your seatbelt. It's a good (laughs) idea. It'll really keep you safe. I guess that's not an example because there are laws that say you have to answer it. But you get what I'm saying. You know, it's like the type of thing that'll keep you secure if you have it. So it's a good idea to have it. Technically, could you get in the car and not put on that seatbelt? Sure. You might drive around a lot and no one ever catches you. you know? I love that analogy. Thanks. <laughs> it's really great. Um, and, and with that, I, I, you know, I'm glad that we talked about kind of the, the how to get legal counsel, when to do it, a couple of those. So now with that in our, in our tool belt, let's maybe circle back to the ABCs in a little bit more detail, um, particularly A, protecting assets. Now, there's laws, right? You, you're not allowed to steal from companies. So the law, I think, would protect some things. And then there are, there are steps a founder can take, like locking down their, their shared drives or locking down access to email, things like that, that will help protect assets. But beyond that, how can a lawyer or a law firm help protect assets? So I, I actually have a chart that I use and like to give out. Hopefully the entrepreneur has thought about this already, but if not, then to kind of guide them through. So if you think about your business, what are the highest revenue generating assets? What are the most, in, or you know whether they're generating that revenue now or you anticipate that in the future? If we were to rank them, you know, top five, top 10, what have you, that's starting to tell us in terms of when, where should I invest my legal dollars, the top most assets usually is where I would suggest as a fair answer. And so if you were to, for example, say that the most important thing is this custom built platform that you have, let's say you're working with a creative design team, you've given them thousands or hundreds of thousands to produce it, and that's the most important piece for you. Everything is revolving around this platform, okay? That's an asset, but do you own it, right? Does the contract properly convey IP rights to you? If you're pitching that platform to investors, they're going to have their legal team run some due diligence. They're not going to invest in it unless you actually own it. Is it all based off of open source code? Is it, you know, something that was custom created? The paper trail of how you might convey an asset, whether it's that example or something else, becomes really important. Uh, And so I think that's one way to kind of look at the priorities there and how lawyers could help you with the contracts 
thinking through that strategically. Another one you see a lot would be a patent or a trademark, depending on how important that is to you. And each business is a little different. And at some, you know, to be kind of conscious about how you make this investment, if you run that chart and just kind of DIY it, I think most of us have a sense in our mind what these things are. But let's say you've got a list of 10 things. You don't necessarily have to invest in legal protection in all of them if you don't have those kinds of funds. Maybe you start with the top one and then quarter over quarter or, you know, however you kind of decide to do this, invest piece by piece in the legal protections around the assets. That is the way I recommend kind of going about piecemealing the legal work in a way that's economically friendly. That's a really helpful example, working with outside contractors. And that actually resonates with me from uh, in our first episode of this podcast, we talked about the importance of content marketing. And I remember being on board and onto a startup. I did a podcast for that startup, not this one, a different one. And there were there was a lot of protection around like, look, it's, it's the company's podcast, um, because that can be a thing too, especially if you hire an influencer, work with influencer marketing, blogs that are written, um, really any marketing, any asset really from marketing all the way down, right? Yeah, my simplification of IP law, this is a way oversimplification, is the creator of a thing by default in the U.S. owns the thing. You're creating a podcast, you're taking pictures somewhere. Unless you convey that ownership interest, usually through a valid contract, by default, the creator owns it. And so people a lot of times confuse work for hire or sometimes maybe give it more than it might be rightly due. And they assume just because I paid you, I now have an ownership interest. There's some truth to that, but there's also some real risk with not backing that up with a tighter contract to make sure those IP rights are transferred. And if you are just a hobbyist kind of entrepreneur, which I don't think most serious entrepreneurs are or want to be, that is really not the right way to run your business because you want to make sure all those core assets are actually protected and you're not in a position to, let's say, be forced to take down images because you don't actually have the right to use them or so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Well, if season two of this podcast is hosted by someone else, uh, it's because my CEO is going to have some conversations with me. <laughs> yeah, about you. We'll talk. <laughs> yeah, after this episode, I, I imagine I'm going to get some frantic messages. Cody, let's talk. Hang on a second. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and then B, business relationships. All I could think of when you talked through that was a prenup, a wedding prenup, right? kind of the same thing, right? It's it's like, I mean, no one gets married thinking, well, this isn't going to last. No one. Right. Um, I, 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 you know, was, was presented with the idea before I got married. And it seems so outrageous and so like almost offensive, right? To the, the couple to, what if I went up to my, I'm not going to walk up to my wife and say, hey, let's sign a prenup. Like that's not a fun conversation to have. But business owners really need to, to just, do it right to, to really just like if I'm a partner with somebody, especially like they really need to have some specific things outlined because in a partnership, particularly things can go really bad. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, essential. And lawyers and myself included, I get to see relationships when they're breaking down, when people are ready to sue their own sister because a business deal went sour, you know, whole 
could be family, it could be close friends, it could be people who don't know each other. Better to have those hard conversations. And listen, you you asked, you know, I kind of got towards this. How do people save money on legal? Have hard conversations up front and in a human way that think through issues that could arise before you ever even need the lawyer. Sadly, since most people try to do what's easy and comfortable, they avoid having those hard conversations up front. And then when things blow up and it's now open heart surgery, the lawyers have to get involved. Ideally, you address these things on the human level in a really detailed way to try to avoid issues in future. And ideally also you have it in writing, but still just addressing it. Things like, hey, if we are two co-founders, what happens if we disagree and there's a deadlock? You know, who decides that decision? Just having a conversation about that. Or things like, you know, hey, if how much capital are we both putting towards this project? Who's paying for what? We got to keep track of this. We got to write it down, you know, and things like how many hours a week are you going to work and am I going to work? What are those hours? Because a lot of times we see one party maybe feeling like the other party isn't putting in enough work. And then a question I always have is like, well, did you define what would be enough work from the beginning? You didn't need me for that. I'm telling you right now, you could do it for free. But a lot of times people just don't talk about it because they assume the marriage is going to be perfect. We overestimate the relationships. And so just want to be careful to do the other person the respect of having the hard questions. That's the way that I look at it. It's not to be mean. It's that I care about you enough to talk to you about this upfront. Yeah. And knowing what you want to get out of that partnership ahead of time, like that that's something startup founders need to really ask themselves, right? Yes. Yes. And a lot of times, at least for the way that I think about it and the team that I kind of work with, we do a lot of lawyer slash therapy-ing <laughs> because we're asking these questions because we need this information to then structure deals in a way that are custom suited to the people that are doing them. It shouldn't be a stock agreement. It should really take into account things like, what do what do you guys want out of this? Yeah. I, I it, working with people is hard. Um, I my my first uh, my first um, podcast was actually just a video game podcast with one of my best friends, and we got along great. He's still one of my best friends, but there was a point I'm like, well, I'm doing all the editing and I'm doing all the marketing and I'm doing that, but I was like, but he doesn't know how to do that stuff, and I've never sat down to show him, and why am I doing it, and do I want to even show him, and it, it just a lot of questions. I know it's just a very silly example, but it like. Yeah, there there are questions that that you don't even know you have until you've gotten a little further in the relationship too. Uh, are there are there particular really important questions that that you think founders um, can ask to kind of help grease the wheels in that regard? Oh yeah, and I have a list. And if anyone wants to email me, I'll send it to you for free. Okay, Ooh. and you can find a lot of these on the internet. So free stuff. Happy to help with that. But simple ones that it's like it's almost it's low hanging fruit. So people just assume and think over it. But some of the things that we've seen would just blow your mind. Things like, do you actually know the legal name of your co-founder? <laughs> Wait, are you serious? <laughs> so serious. <laughs> like, we thought this was their name because that's what they told us. And it's not something, you know, I question like, hey, Cody, show me your ID. I don't know if you're who you say you are. I, I just assume you're telling me the truth. But in a business deal, you know. It could be something different. There could be a universe where you're doing business with someone and maybe they're using a different name because whatever reason. 
And then if things go sour or they just disappear, we can't find them if you never knew their real name. Just an example of something that seems so obvious but can really hurt you if you didn't ask the question. Uh, yes. Wow. Wouldn't have, <laughs> wouldn't have put that on the list of things to watch out for. So thanks for calling that out. Um, and, and then, uh, C contracts. Um, let's talk about the funding angle of this because okay. when you get funded, there's a whole lot of agreements that happen in place. So, um, have you found, or are you aware of like, when I'm a startup, if I walk in to try to get funding, I need to have like legal counsel ready and available right then? Like, is that an asset that the VCs see as is really important to kind of have locked down on your team before they work with you? I think there's some things you, I don't know that the VCs will necessarily care. Sometimes they will vet and maybe not like the qualifications of the lawyer that you have brought to the table. And if that is the case, then you might have to rehire, you know, so like, let's say you're just hiring a friend and they don't really understand corporate law or how to do a deal. You might work with a more sophisticated BC who's like, get yourself a, you know, an experienced law firm to help you out. And that's something they're telling you as a courtesy. Um, Maybe a yellow flag is if they're really pushing for you to hire a law firm that they do deals with could create a conflict. Most firms won't do that, but be wary of. Um, Separately, There's certain things that you can ask with or without a lawyer that are okay to ask. Um, Things like, what kind of due diligence checks are you going to run? What kinds of things are you going to want us to have so that you can start teeing that all up separately from engaging your lawyer? Because you know the VC is going to want it or whoever you're working with in terms of securing funding. I mean, this would be true even if you were getting a bank loan. What are the documents needed? Go out and collect them look at them, see where there's holes, um, and then kind of go from there. But if you are kind of going the traditional funding route, most of the time, I'm going to feel like I want to say every time, you're already working with an experienced investor who has a legal counsel or legal team. They know what they want. And so what we always recommend to keep costs down is have the legal team for the funding side do the heavy lifting on the drafting so that they're bearing that expense, and then have a trusted lawyer in your corner who can just edit it, review it, help make sure you understand the stickier provisions so that you're not signing something that's just terrible for you. And a really important thing to remember about contracts, it is a lawyer's job to zealously represent their client. So contracts that you receive from someone else are almost always inherently one-sided. If the VC's lawyers wrote the contract, they wrote it to protect the VC, not you. They're not your lawyers. It's really important to make sure that you don't just blindly trust the lawyers for someone else in a, any type of business relationship. It's not their job to protect you. You're not paying for them to do that. That's what your lawyer would do. So sometimes people just sign things and they're like, hey, a lawyer did it, so it's perfect. Well, maybe so, but probably perfect for the other side and not for you. Sure. Reading the fine print, important. So when you get a uh, an offer of funding from a VC, maybe check in and, and get some legal counsel in that situation. And then in terms of having a lawyer, perhaps, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the risk proportion, right? The, the analyzed risk from most to least risky. A VC might look at 
a high risk startup, maybe in healthcare, and say, you've got to have an ironclad, like really good attorney on your side that is going to help, you know, help you navigate this space, right? That that could be in those situations that could be seen as an asset where the VC is like, okay, great. They they have someone protecting them in this a little bit more high risk industry. Yeah, or maybe even that you've thought high level about what it's going to look like in the high-risk industry, because hopefully you get the funding and then you're able to inject that towards building the right team to be protected. Um, But if your financials, especially in a high-risk industry, don't consider the cost of an internal or external legal team doing constant compliance and protecting you, your financials are probably extremely weak. So just thinking about that on a high level, whether you or not you even get to the place where you hire the lawyers is important so that you can model correctly and pitch correctly. Kristen, you are a wealth of information. This was an incredible conversation. Now, you're located in South Florida, which is kind of a hotbed of of startups and entrepreneurship, right? If yeah. people are in the South Florida region and they're starting a business, how can they work with you? Where can they find you? Yeah, so I still have the same practice as I did before, just now a bigger and even better team to help me out. So they can reach me via email, Kristen at TremblyLaw.com. I'm on social. LinkedIn tends to be where I play the most. So I'd love to connect with folks individually on LinkedIn. Happy to help. And if there's any free resources that I can provide, happy to do that. If you follow me, I post a good amount of tips and things like that. So freebies. That is amazing. We'll include links to all that in the show notes. But I just have to say thank you so much, Krista, for joining me. This is a, I think our listeners are going to get a tremendous amount of value from this conversation, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate you giving legal a chance to shine. It's not always the sexiest topic, so thank you for including it. I don't think anyone could see legal as mean or scary after hearing <laughs> you on this show, honestly. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you remember those ABCs. Protect assets business relationships, and contracts. And if your business is taking on more risk, then it might be time to talk to an attorney. Anyway, next week on The Funding Blueprint, you're going to learn about two specific tactics that could make or break your chances of getting funded straight from an investor. To make sure you don't miss that episode, remember to follow The Funding Blueprint on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast app to get new episodes for free every week. In the meantime, let's keep the conversation going. Join our engaged community of entrepreneurs and investors on Discord. There's a link to find that in the description of today's episode. The Funding Blueprint is produced by me, Cody Goff, with audio and video editing by Sean Patel. If you're looking for exceptional sound design or audio video production work, get in touch with Sean at seanpatel.com. Thanks again for joining me and have a great week.